We were trying to save the world I was picking up the house Why don't you put it down? Come over Come over Hello! Welcome to Femidish. This is a podcast looking at food through a feminist lens where we elevate the stories of women by celebrating their unique abilities to nourish themselves and one another. My name is Sandy and I'm here with my co-host Hope. Hi Hope! Hi. And we are very excited for our guest today, Mena. Menatala Eldori is an archaeologist specializing in culinary archaeology and heritage. She has a PhD in Egyptology with a focus on archaeobotanical analysis. And she was recently the guest editor for Rawi Magazine's History of Egyptian Issue. Hi, Mena. Hello. Hello, ladies. Thank you for having me. We are so glad to have you today and what an interesting um, set of research that you have been doing. So tell us a little bit about yourself to start. Where are you calling from and what is life like for you right now? So I'm calling from Cairo, Egypt, um, and our flat is right by the Nile. So we have these big French windows overlooking the Nile and the Nile is the biggest, uh, longest river in Africa. It splits Egypt right almost down the center throughout the entire length of the country. And there's so much history associated with the Nile. It has long been a lifeline for the Egyptians and the flood was worshiped by the ancient Egyptians because it was integral to the flourishing of the ancient Egyptian civilization because um, the flood would come in and fertilize the banks of the Niles on the east um, and the west. So people would uh, be able to grow and cultivate and live off the land without uh, worrying too much about hunger. And that left them with all this time to develop the ancient Egyptian civilization. And just if I look straight ahead onto the other bank of the Nile, I'm on the west bank. And if I look onto the east bank of the Nile, um, I can see the citadel, which is a fortified complex built in the 12th century um, AD, so well after ancient Egyptian history had ended. And um, it's a it's a it's quite an impressive building that dominates that part of the Kyrene landscape. And more specifically, I can see a mosque, the mosque of uh, Muhammad Ali Pasha, who's credited with uh, establishing modern Egypt. He was an Albanian who came to Egypt um, in uh, the 19th century, and the mosque was built in the 19th century. And it has these beautiful two minarets where the um, Mu'azzin, the person charged with the call for prayer, would climb up to call for the prayer back then um, to announce the prayer uh, five times a day. And, and the domes are made out of this beautiful bright white alabaster that shines in the landscape. And just past that, the last thing my eye can see is a series of hills on the east bank of Cairo, the Mukattam Hills, which also have a legend associated with them. Um, in the 10th uh, century, uh, the Pope of the Coptic Church, um, the Egyptian Christian Church, um, his faith was challenged. And he was told, if your faith in Christianity is so strong, you would be able to move the mountain. And on advice of someone called Simon the Tanner, um, it's a very long story. He managed to move the mountain from one part of the, of the town to another. And as it moved, a cave cracked open with a ver um, an image of the Virgin Mary coming out from, from this cave. And today it's a church that you can visit. And it's a beautiful church inside the mountain. And it's just, it, this is what is amazing about Cairo and about Egypt is wherever you look, there is so much history and so many layers of history and it's 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 quite impressive and even though i live here and i see it every day i'm still quite impressed by how much we have at our fingertips wow that just in just a couple of moments you spanned how many centuries <laughs> talking about with the nile and the church and the citadel uh that's really impressive what a wonderful space and what a wonderful scene you just shared with us thank you <laughs> 
so archaeology is something that I, I personally, and I don't know about you, Hope, but, you know, I think of like uh, Indiana Jones and I definitely think of, you know, movies about Egyptology, uh, uh, Egyptologists and things like that. But it's always very like, you know, maybe um, media driven or, you know, pop culture or something. Um, I don't really know much about the field besides what I've seen in some of those things. So can you tell us a little bit about um, your approach to archaeology and what culinary archaeology is and how you found yourself in that field? So you, you talk about uh, pop culture and the representation of archaeology and Egyptology in pop culture. I ended up deciding to be an archaeologist when I saw Jurassic Park, the first one. Because awesome. there's, this, there's this scene where you have the paleontologists all hunched over excavating. Um, and I saw this and I loved it. And I thought, this is exactly what I want to do. So from a very young age, um, pop culture left its impact on me. But excavating, of course, in the real world is very different. Um, we don't walk around with whips. We've never had to use whips. <laughs> We've never been chased by uh, big uh, boulders. Um, <laughs> so you're saying Indiana Jones lied to us? He embellished. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's, it's very tough actually working on the field because we, we have to wake up very early in the morning to avoid the hottest part of the day. Um, sometimes we have to live in very rudimentary accommodation that isn't very pleasant, um, but we like working with one another. Usually you work on the same excavations year in, year out. And these people become like your family that you almost go on holiday with once a year. And it makes it, makes it worthwhile, really, the people you, you work with and the people you meet. And of course, all the discoveries and the cool things that we, that we see and we do. It's actually, it's, it's a lot of fun what we do. And when we when we recount to our friends, oh, I was hanging out the other day and we had to climb up um, um, a rock face so we can record some inscriptions or we had to uh, climb into a tomb. It sounds very exciting. And even for other Egyptians, whenever I tell them what I do, they're always quite um, enthralled by how exciting it is. And um, it is very hard work on the field, but it's also very, very gratifying. Wow. Yeah, I'm thinking about when I saw that movie, The Mummy, and just how, you know, they're always like running through, you know, running through pyramids and they were, you know, digging up these ancient things. And um, I would imagine maybe it's it's some of that, but um, the embellishments really make it seem like every day is this, you know, amazing discovery and, and ancient uh, of ancient pieces or something. And maybe that happens, but. It's a, it's a lot. The, the pace in reality is a lot slower. <laughs> because you work very, very, very slowly. And um, we funding is also an issue. And so we don't have as much funding as Hollywood films to undertake <laughs> our excavation. So the pace is very different. <laughs> um, what is culinary archaeology? What does that mean? Culinary archaeology or food archaeology is studying anything and everything related to food, how people sourced, the, the raw ingredients for their food, how did they store it, trade it, prepare it, um, where did they prepare it, who prepared it, um, how did they eat it, were there any particular traditions related to um, the, 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 social, the social part of food preparation and consumption, were there any traditions related to preparing or eating particular foods, how did they um, uh, get rid of the leftovers, did they just throw them out, that they feed them to animals. There's this whole cycle related to food um, that is very, very interesting to look at um, within an archeological uh, excavation or an archeological project. Yeah, I was reading in one of your articles about all the different things that you were able to know, or you and the world now is able to know about ancient Egypt and all the different things about how they ate. And definitely some things, you know, well, we don't know why they used this ingredient or we don't know how they prepared this, but it's a pretty extensive amount that was able to um, be found out about what how the ancient Egy Egyptians lived. And that was thousands of years ago. It's almost like a, a detective. You're putting together all these interesting pieces like 
Um, you know, oh, well, we know they used an oven because one side of the bread was burnt, or we know that they ate this animal versus doing something else with it because there was cuts in the bone. So it's, oh, you're really like doing some detective work to learn all these things from thousands and thousands of years ago. Um, you know, we, it does feel like detective work all the time because you're looking for clues. And even when we're excavating on the field, you, we always write down, we always have a diary, we write down everything from the weather to what we ate to how we're feeling to the actual work and what we're discovering. And it feels like a detective just opening up your little notebook and writing down all this information as it comes along. And then um, a month later or even a day later, you review your theories in the light of new evidence. But with ancient Egypt, we're extremely lucky at the amount of data that we have surviving to tell us about how they lived in general, not just about the food preparation. And so one of the things that people most um, recognize about ancient Egypt are these beautiful scenes that are drawn and mostly the, the beautifully colored ones are in tombs or in temples and um, people get a lot of offerings left in their tombs. And it wasn't because contrary to popular belief that the ancient Egyptians were obsessed with death. In fact, they were so passionate for life that they wanted to ensure that in the afterlife, they will have everything that they need. And so everything that they had placed in their tombs were supposed to serve them in the next life after they have passed through the judgment and they can live in what um, their equivalent of paradise known as the fields of rushes. And they also had these, um, these tomb scenes um, that depicted activities from their daily lives that they wanted to ensure their, um, they would uh, perpetually stay in the afterlife. And so you have, in terms of um, food, you have all these scenes that show um, the deceased, the, the person who had passed away, with his wife, because usually the tomb is the domain of the male. Um, and his wife would be w buried along with him, but he would be the focus. So you would have the deceased sitting with his wife um, seated behind him and a beautiful, lavishly colored and decorated um, table of food offerings would be laid out in front of them, full of different types of fruits and vegetables and spring onions were very popular in ancient Egypt. They would have bread, they would have eggs, they would have different types of um, ducks and geese. They didn't have chickens in ancient Egypt, different cuts of meat. And also the tomb scenes, we have tomb scenes that depict um, viticulture and how they made wine or how they made beer. But these scenes were never meant to be a one-on-one, one-to-one representation of how people prepared things. So it would just be a few symbolic, a few key scenes from any activity. And we are able to use those to figure out, kind of guess, a little bit like a detective. We get these little clues and figure out how they would have made all of these different things. And we do use a lot of experimental archaeology. So when we try, we see a scene, we may have tools, we may have structures within the settlements with where people live. And we put all these things together and try to figure out how they would have prepared um, their food. In addition, we also have a lot of um, plant remains, a lot of animal remains. Uh, we have ceramics that were found. Ceramics are ubiquitous. Think of plastic today and how it ends up everywhere and stays forever. Ceramics were the plastic of the ancient world because they were used for all these containers. And when they break, they were recycled and used like sticky notes. You would write your notes on them or your shopping lists or letters. So you have all of this information and you're able to use all these different techniques to figure out how people ate. And one of the special things about ancient Egypt as well is we have texts. We have a lot of textual evidence like lists of offerings, lists of food offerings, for example. Um, and and this, is, this is in the realm of the dead where you have the food offerings written down on, on someone's tomb walls, but also in the realm of the living, you would have receipts of food delivery. So someone received this and this much of wheat, someone received this and this much of this uh, type of bean or, or whatever. And so we do have all of this information that allows us to figure out a lot about what they ate, but we don't always know how they cooked it. We know a lot about the raw ingredients, but very little about how these were actually put together. 
and a lot of people who work on reconstructing ancient dishes, we, we are never really sure how they are spiced. Today in a recipe, you will have season to taste written down, but how, how did they season the food according to what taste? Our tastes today are probably very different and our ingredients as well probably taste very different. That's incredible that there's such a detailed record of, you know, you were saying like even what people, individuals might've had delivered to them, um, which just led me to kind of thinking about how um, advanced the food system must have been if they were kind of, you know, delivering produce to one another. Um. One of the interesting things, I'll, let, me, let me tell you something here that is quite um, interesting. Um, the pyramid builders, and this is quite quite cool. The pyramid builders, who were, um, of course, you had the the professional, the upper echelons, the overseers who were hired year round to oversee the the the, the building of the pyramids. But the simple workmen were actually uh, men from all the different uh, counties or all the different governorates um, of Egypt, and it would sort of be like a military conscription. It would be a service that they're doing to. Um, the state and the god. And because this was such an important national project of such magnitude, they never had to worry about their food. They would have the state provide for them. And so you would have hundreds and thousands of workmen and the state would um, uh, uh, pick particular domains across the country that would grow the food that these people need and they would have them delivered. And so when you think of a project of that magnitude, think of the people that built it and how were they fed and all the trade networks and how developed that would have been. Now that leads me to wonder if you, you know, if you have that many, um, I'm assuming men as in male workers working on this very physical, very large, massive projects. Um, does that, I mean, is it safe to kind of assume that that means women were um, often tasked with, you know, the, the agriculture aspects or preparing food or delivering food or what was women's role in that system? One of the problems we have in archaeology is if you walk into an archaeological site and you have the remaining archaeological features that you can see an oven here, a room here, um, maybe a, a, a doorway or a post hole where a building once stood, you can never really figure out who would have used the different spaces and how, whether it would have been a female-dominated space, for example, the kitchen, or would it be um, the, the, the space for the males? And so specifically with the case of the pyramids, it seems that while some of the upper echelons may have had their families with them, for the most cases, they were individual workmen and they would have been preparing their own food. It seems like it, but there is no evidence particularly for women preparing the food for them. But back home in their villages, um, we, we can assume that both men and women worked um, side by side in the field. And it's funny because in the ancient Egyptian canon of art, the way they uh, portrayed themselves, it was very, very, it was a very strict canon and it was very gendered. The male was always depicted with a uh, um, very dark skin because in theory he's out working on the fields while the females were depicted with very very fair skin because in theory they're staying home but in fact you get um, agricultural scenes on tools that show men and women working together and it is extremely likely like today in Egypt that you'd have the men and women working together side by side in the fields undertaking all the agricultural activities No, you just mentioned, Mina, about the how that might be similar to ancient um, to ancient women and women nowadays, um, like working in the fields and stuff. Are there any other similarities or differences that you've noted between the role of women in ancient Egypt um, in any of this food system work um, and the role of modern Egyptian women? Has anything um, tran uh, you know, transferred that over that time? There is so much continuity that we have between ancient Egypt and modern Egypt in um, in so many aspects, in, in some aspects related to food, in the role of women, um, in different traditions that we have, different cultural um, rituals. 
but it's sometimes dangerous to just assume continuity across the board. So with the role of women, we assume that the role of women would have been very similar in ancient Egypt, where um, women would have ruled over the, the kitchen domain um, and the, the, the food preparation, and men and women would have been able to both work out on the fields. The women may have um, come in midday, brought some food over for the men. If if the women hadn't been on the field or they can just take a break, go home, bring the food and, and take it over to the men. Um, but there isn't a lot of solid evidence, particularly about that. Now, what, if any, symbolism did food play in ancient Egypt? Um, you mentioned that it was obviously very important because they're inscribing symbols of food on tomb walls and they're leaving you know, physical offerings of food within tombs. Um, but is there any deeper symbology, uh, foods that represented fertility um, or wealth, perhaps? Um, so for wealth, of course, you had um, meat represented wealth because only the elite were able to afford it. And um, wine as well. Most in, of the ancient Egyptians would uh, subsist on beer and it was a very thick, nutritious beer. And this is what they had access to regularly. And for festivals, whether um, royal or religious festivals, but they were both really the same thing. Um, the rulers, the pharaohs would distribute wine to the masses in, in celebration of this. And they would also distribute uh, meat. But there's one cut of meat specifically, um, which is the left foreleg of, of a, a cow um, that was particularly valuable to the ancient Egyptians because this was um, closer to the heart on the left side. And for the ancient Egyptians, the left side was the lucky side. This is where the heart was. And they believed that your morals, your ethics, everything lived in your heart. They didn't think anything happened up there in the brain. And when they mummified, they got rid of the brain because they didn't realize it was of any value. Um, but everything happened in the heart. And so in offerings, very often you would have this foreleg being presented as an offering to the deceased or to the gods or to the king because it was very, very valuable. It was um, the closest to the heart um, from the animal. Um, and I'm trying to think of other foods that had particular um, rituals. I can't think. Well, wheat and barley were very important in ancient Egypt. Wheat was um, how people received um, their rations or their wages. Sometimes they would receive them in, in, uh, in wheat. Um, but there's one medical recipe. Well, I don't know if I would call it medical, but... Um, a woman who wants to find out whether or not she was pregnant, she would urinate on uh, a bowl of barley and a bowl of wheat. And depending on which one sprouted, um, she would be either pregnant, not pregnant, and pregnant with whether a male or a female. Oh, interesting. Like the first pregnancy test. Yes, a pregnancy test. And I know people who tried it and unfortunately it didn't work. Oh. <laughs> um, I was just going to ask, I wonder if they, if we, there's a way we could test that theory out now. Any pregnant woman you know, just give her wheat and barley and, yep. and see what happens. <laughs> um, I read in one of your articles about um, honey and about how honey was only reserved for the wealthy because according to the ancient Egyptians, it came right from the god of Ra and was the god of Ra's tears. I thought that was a really interesting, um, uh, you know, symbol or meaning to ascribe to honey, which was actually probably could be pretty ubiquitous because bees are just making honey everywhere. So it wasn't it wasn't a status symbol because of, oh, it was rare and special. It was they gave it a status symbol because of what they where they thought it came from. So based on textual evidence, we understand that it was rare and a status symbol. Um, and we, we've seen apiaries depicted on tomb scenes, but how, how often it was, it was, it was quite a delicacy because you would have the royalty talking about um, honey cakes. Um, but still, a lot of people may have had access to it on occasion. That's, that's really interesting. And the like, you know, the like child in me that learned about ancient Egypt um, just thinks that all the, the mythology and the, you know, the religious part of all of that is, um, is really, is really interesting and how that obviously played a role in food life. You know, how religion, any religion has 
food rules and um, food ways and food cultures. So it's um, it's just really cool to learn about what those food, what the religious life and how that transpired into their food life. You yeah. mentioned about giving offerings and you know, that's very common in lots of different religions of food offerings. And something I've always wondered about any religion that gives food offerings, was there any like limitations to offerings uh, because, you know, different individuals, if they were experiencing poverty or they needed that food to eat, like, was there a status aligned with being able to give actual food offerings if you needed that food for yourself? Was there, is there anything to comment on that? Um, yes. Um, we can tell from the way different tombs and different burials were prepared that it was also very class-based. It depends on your social economic background because the more wealthy had much more elaborate tombs. And this was reflected in everything that they had in their tombs as well. So from the jewelry that they have, instead of lavish gold and silver jewelry, um, they would have very simple uh, bracelets made out of uh, um, uh, bone. So you do see a very clear um, class differentiation and social stratification in the in the burials and of course uh, food as well it's it's very clear with that because some of the um very humble simple burials i've worked on they never had any food offerings they only had um some some beer some of them had beer and i'm trying to think of another site where they would have it was a slightly higher class and they would have um, the occasional fruit uh, and some grains with them. And so it did very much depend on how much you could afford. And one, um, it's, a, it's a cool story, but it's also quite sad. It breaks my heart. There was a woman who lived about, um, so let's say about 5,000 years ago, 5,100 years ago. And she was buried here very close to Cairo. And she had this most amazing almost a banquet buried with her. She had um, a, some kind of uh, a duck, a fish stew with the, and, a, and a, a pigeon stew, and she had ducks, and she had different types of breads and sweets, and she had um, some kind of cheese. She had a huge, quite a big banquet with, buried with her. And when her mummy was analyzed, they noticed that she was missing the complete uh, side of one of her jaws and so and it was an injury that she sustained very on early on in her life and she was quite um old when she had uh, passed away and so she would have lived for years without being able to eat all of this delicious food so you can imagine how her family or how maybe she had decided please make sure i have all this delicious food that i can eat in the afterlife wow i would totally do that one <laughs> Give me all the foods because I really don't want to run out. I love food so much. Um, we've heard a lot about like food offerings and um, what's found in tombs. And I'm wondering if because that's sometimes better preserved, that information of what was gifted to the wealthy in the ways of food offerings and, and what the wealthy ate because it was also inscribed in, in drawings on the tomb walls. But I'm curious, you talked about um, the average citizen in ancient Egypt drinking a beer that was like a thick nutritional beer versus wine, which was reserved for a wealthier class. Um, could you elaborate a little bit on what you do know about what the average citizen diet looked like and how that varied between classes? Because I imagine it's quite different than what you find um, in the tombs. Um, the, the tombs in ancient Egypt were meant to survive for all eternity. And this is why we have a lot of information from them. But we also have a lot of settlements that have been excavated. And some of the settlements are that were occupied for thousands of years. You just have one layer upon layer of, of settlement activity. And you can just see where people are demolishing earlier houses and building new houses. And then their houses are demolished. Um, and we do know a lot about what the average person ate. But we don't have a clear-cut separation of the different classes and what they would have eaten on on a regular uh, on a regular day. But we know that, of course, bread was the staple of ancient Egyptian diet. Um, it was we there were tens of different types of breads. We know this from the different names that they had. We know this from uh, bread loaves that were discovered, whether in tombs or in settlements, and some of them have 
fruit like figs, spices like fennel, some were shaped like, um, uh, these are quite nice, uh, they're shaped like different animals, uh, like a dog or a fish or what have you. Um, we know that they were reliant a lot on pulses, they would have eaten a lot of lentils, they would have eaten a lot of leafy greens and vegetables that are available and are still um, grown today. Some of them are wild, so they would have eaten purslane. Um, I, you would be familiar with purslane. Yeah, I am actually. Everyone thinks it's a weed here. Everyone pulls it up as a weed, but it's a, it's a lovely little green it, vegetable. Exactly, it grows it grows with uh, with the winter cereal uh, cultivation, and so people would have eaten a lot of that as well, like we do today. We do eat uh, a lot of it, and um, a mallow as well, a type of mallow that grows wild, and people would have had access to this in addition to fish, because of the Nile, people would have had easy access to fish. And there were different methods of preparing fish. We have um, scenes that show how they dried the fish or how they cut up the fish. Uh, people would have also had um, geese and, uh, and, um, and ducks. They would have eaten pigeons and quails. Um, we don't know how often they would have had access, especially to the geese and the ducks for the average person, but they would have certainly been available. Um, to to the average person, perhaps for special occasions. Um, and what else would have people eaten? Uh, lots of fruit as well, dates, especially um, by about uh, 4,000 years ago, uh, Egyptians figured out or were taught how to um, cross-pollinate uh, palm trees because um, it's one of the species that you need to cross artificially pollinate. Um, they don't pollinate just on their own. And so when, when we learned how to do that about 4,000 years ago, um, you'd get uh, dates being consumed everywhere, and they would have probably made date wine as well. Um, Yum. And possibly pomegranate wine. There's a type of wine or a type of a, a drink. We're not quite sure what it is, but many people believe it's a type of a pomegranate wine. I would love some date, yeah, date wine and a pomegranate wine. Let's bring those back. Yes, and they would have flavored. They would have flavored wine as well with figs or raisins, just for for an added sugar to support fermentation and also for the added flavor. Now, Mena, you were you beautifully described the view outside your window when we started this interview, um, and of course that included the Nile, which is you know such a an essential part of Egypt when I think about it as an American. Um, and you mentioned about how it would flood and fertilize the land on either bank, allowing for, um, you know, just this very fertile agricultural space for Egyptians. And could you elaborate a little bit on the role of the Nile in the food system? You also mentioned that fish was a staple part of diets because of it. Um, I just feel like it's so central, not only literally to the geography in your country, um, but to the food culture. Absolutely, because um, so you'd get these these rich floods every year um, that are full of all this rich uh, nutrients and all this rich uh, fertilized silt coming in from um, the south, and it would just flood the lands. And you never really had to fertilize the lands because as the flood recedes, it leaves this thick black silt. And the ancient Egyptians, actually, the, the ancient Egyptian name for Egypt is Kemet, the black land. And it was in reference to um, this thick layer of uh, soil and silt that was left on the agricultural land. And this was in comparison with the red land, the desert, which ancient Egyptians were terrified of. They didn't like the deserts. They believed the demons lived there. And so they were so attached to the Nile Valley. And um, as the, the flood has receded, you're able to cultivate and grow whatever you want that was very rich coming out of the ground with all these nutrients with very little effort. You never had to um, undertake very complicated uh, tillage or, or fertilizing or place a lot of farmyard manure on, on the agricultural lands. And so it was so important. And then it was thanks to the Nile that people were also able to trade up and down the Nile throughout Egypt. Because if you load up a donkey, and you send it from the south to the north or vice versa, um, if you don't calculate it right, 
the energy that the donkey needs, the food that donkey needs to eat, cancels the amount of money you will make out of the trip. Um, but with the Nile, you can send uh, boats up and down the Nile. And this is why uh, when the Romans took over Egypt after the fall of Cleopatra the seventh, the famous Cleopatra, um, Egypt was annexed to the Roman Empire. <clears throat> excuse me, and it became known as the bread basket of the Roman Empire. Um, it was specifically, so this is, talk, we're talking about 30, uh, the, the Ptolemaic kingdom right before the Roman period or right before we were annexed into the Roman Empire was a fell in 30 BC. So starting 30 BC, we were part of the Roman Empire for um, about 300-ish years, a little more, almost 400 years. And um, we we um, became the breadbasket of the Roman Empire because um, the ease of the transportation, because you can send crops up and down the Nile and you can send boats up and down the Nile and it, through the Mediterranean to Rome without much difficulty. And again, in the Ottoman period, so this is um, 16th, 17th, 18th centuries AD, Egypt again became uh, the breadbasket of the Ottoman Empire. Um, because it had all, of course, all this agricultural land, this beautiful agricultural land, but also the Nile would allow the transportation of the crops up and down, uh, in and out of the country, mostly out. They all, they all exploited e Egyptian, beautiful Egyptian agricultural lands, and they took that all out into either the Roman Empire or later the Ottoman Empire. Um, I, that's... That's super, that's super interesting to think about. Um, I also, I smiled to myself when you mentioned Cleopatra just for a moment, because that's now the second time that Cleopatra has been mentioned on our podcast. Um, the first time we were talking about an anecdote, you know, who knows if this is real or not, an anecdote between Cleopatra and Mark Anthony and how Cleopatra, they had a, um, a, a, a bet, you know, a dare of who could ha eat the most expensive meal. And so Cleopatra came in and and dissolved a really uh, a really expensive and a really rare pearl into a glass and shot it like a shot of alcohol and that was you know worth like thousands and thousands of dollars equivalent um, and she just you know kind of walked out and won the bet between Mark with her and Mark Anthony. <laughs> um, so it's just I, a, have, a I have never I have never heard of that, but they uh -oh. did have pearls at that time. Yes, and there was some, uh, I guess someone, you know, recently tried to maybe recreate that to see if you actually could dissolve a pearl in some sort of liquid that they would have had, some sort of pearl that they would have had at that time, um, and that they were able to do it. It took maybe, you know, 10 hours or something for the pearl to dissolve, but they it, theoretically, it could have been possible. <laughs> actually, now that I think of it, I wonder if that story was told by one by um, one of the early uh, historians. Um, I think I may have heard the story before. I'll have to look it up. I think it was uh, Pliny the elder who may have who may have said it. I'll have to I'll have to check it. I can't remember that story. That, if you could fact check for us about the story of Cleopatra, that would be, and or provide any more context. Um, it definitely is a somebody to think about and paints this very cool picture of Cleopatra as you know she comes in, you know she doesn't need to prepare all these expensive fancy foods. She just comes in with one pearl and you know takes a shot and walks back out. I, I like that vision of her. <laughs> okay. Yes. Uh, yeah. I can imagine. Yes. I'll, uh, I'll have to check. I, I think it may have been Pliny who said it. That's cool. That's great. So moving on a little bit from ancient Egypt, um, you know, there's there's thousands of years of Egyptian history that I'm sure, you know, I, I know that you research and um, that still has a lot of rich things to tell us about this time. Um, what, how did life change? What did it mean after that, you know, ancient period when we think of the, the pyramids and the pharaohs, you know, after that sort of ended, how did life change for the Egyptians? And did that change any role for women in society or women in the food system? It's um, it's quite interesting because I was just thinking of that uh, yesterday and reading a little bit about it, um, about women in the medieval period specifically. So we're talking about, let's say, 13th, 14th centuries AD. During that time, and I'm talking specifically, everything I say is going to be related to Cairo, which was um, 
which was established by that point. Um, and most people did not have kitchens in their homes and they would rely on either preparing meals that they would send out to be cooked in communal ovens or baked in communal ovens, or people just relied on takeaway. And, and just they would go up, go into the market and pick up whatever they want. And there was such a thriving food scene, um, a, a street food scene in medieval Cairo. But that makes me think of the role of women, because very often in, in this traditional society, we would imagine that the, the kitchen was the domain of the women. And this is how she controlled everything. This is how she controlled the household. This is how she controlled her husband. Because if she's, un, if, he, if she's unhappy with him, she would not cook his favorite food. If she's happy with him, she would quick, uh, cook his favorite food. It was the center of her power. Um, but if they didn't have any kitchens, how would she maintain power? What kind of um, influence she would have had in the day-to-day -day decisions to as to what they should order and what should they bring from the market? Maybe that would have been her power, but it's still not the same as when she is actually personally supervising the cooking in her own kitchens or personally preparing the food in her own kitchens. And it's quite interesting because this is something that certainly needs to be researched further about if women are unable to cook in medieval Cairo, what would they have been doing and what, um, what, would, what would their source of power be? Interesting. Um, so when you say power, like, is that was that was that power um, tangible at all? Like, did women have any authority over other parts of life? Did society view women as in as a source of power, or is it more like this is the only power she could have, so she needed to quote wield it in a certain way? What did you know? What, what did society view the role of women and their status? In the medieval period, um, it would be the, her extent of the, of the woman's power would be within her household. It wouldn't extend beyond that. Um, and it was quite a conservative, closed society at the time, unlike ancient Egypt, where women played a much more visible role in society and had a lot more rights that, um, that, that, that um, ensured their, their well-being financially and emotionally. Uh, you mentioned the, uh, and I might pronounce this wrong, the uh, Fatimid period, Fatimid period. Yes. Uh, I, I, don't, I, I don't know if I pronounced that right. Um, Fatimid, but, that's correct. Fatimid. Okay, great. Um, and that women chefs, is that what, it, what you know, that they were um, cooks, they were well-trained, they had really high reputations. Um, how, where does that fit into the time period we're talking about medieval and ancient Egypt? And what, what would it mean for women to be trained, well-trained cooks? So the Fatimids is about the 10th, 11th century AD. So this is what we can call early medieval, uh, the early medieval period. And you would have these um, slave girls, they refer to as slave girls, working in the ruler's palaces. And... They were so well trained and their skill was so renowned that a nobility from different parts of the ancient world in the Near East would send over their own cooks to learn under the, the Egyptian, um, in, the, in the Egyptian palaces with these young ladies. And um, if they weren't able to send their cooks, sometimes they would try to, to win the favor of these girls and to have them travel over to work for them and they were quite well renowned for their different skills we don't know exactly particular stories about how how they um, represented or expressed these skills if there were particular dishes that they did but we know that during the fatimids uh, the rulers would have these very lavish celebrations on every occasion really and the women would be um, preparing a lot of this food and a lot of the food would also be um, uh, distributed outside of the palace gates to the masses, to the public. And after the Fatimid dynasty was overthrown, the following dynasty, when they came in, for some reason, they decided to let go a lot of these very well-trained women. And these women took to the streets. They had nowhere else to go. And so they set up stalls onto the streets to sell the food that they learned how to cook in the palace. And 
this was a very important catalyst, a very important injection of haute cuisine and very high culinary skills and flavors into the um, Kairin market scene, which eventually led to a, a very, very thriving uh, street food scene in Cairo. And it was partially thanks to these skilled cooks. Wow, and that food scene with the, the street cooks and stuff, um, you know, having never been to Cairo, I, does that still exist today? It, it seems like it probably does. Um, when different visitors came to Egypt in the 14th century, a bit before and a bit after, they observed thousands upon thousands of these restaurants, these street stalls. Um, and someone said on one street there were 48,000 bakers. Of course, this number would have been vastly over-exaggerated. But because at the time, people did not have access to kitchens, they relied on the street food. And unfortunately, now we don't have quite a thriving street food scene, although we do rely to a large extent on street food that we just pick up on the way home, that we, that we eat at home. It is not what it once was, of course. So there's a lot of street food, but not, not like in the 14th century. Okay, interesting. Um... And the women that were running those street food uh, carts and, you know, and kitchens and stuff, was that a well-regarded profession or was that seen as something, you know, for a lower class? What, what, how did society view the, that profession and women in that profession? I don't know. I cannot think of any particular, um, any particular texts that talk about this with the exception of a couple of texts that said but it was probably uh, an incorrect view um someone who i think may have been german who visited egypt around then in the 14th century who said that egyptian men would never eat anything cooked by a woman and they would never go anywhere um anywhere close to food touched by a woman but this was probably just someone's very unfair assessment of a situation and people ate food that women prepared all the time so it was just a one-off thing we don't know what was going on in his mind but i don't know any particular details about how these women were regarded interesting it's like you know you have so many sources of of accounts across history and you probably have to do a lot of cross-checking or you know any of your really good detective work that <laughs> to figure out, okay, was this an accurate statement about what was going on? Or is this person, you know, like just, um, you know, saying something of their own personal opinion. So that must be hard to parse through all of that different information. Yes. And a lot of these original sources, especially the Arabic ones, they're written in a very old form of Arabic or a very classical form of Arabic. And the, the, the handwriting is very difficult. So for me, I'm very lucky because I, I can speak and read the Arabic without a problem, but this part, these particular types of texts are very difficult to read. And very often I may have to go to, a, to an Arabist who might not be a native Arabic speaker, but they are trained in reading that particular type of Arabic. So we've talked about medieval Egypt, ancient Egypt, and some of the modern Egypt food culture. Um, is there anything in your studies, in your research, Mena, about women and food in particular that we haven't touched on? Um, a couple of years ago, um, a colleague of mine who was teaching a course on women in ancient Egypt asked me to talk to her students. And I thought, oh, that'd be very easy. I'll talk to them about food preparation and women, and, and it's so easy, no problem. I can I can prepare that without much, without investing a lot of time. And I thought, what I would do is I'd show them um, a lot of scenes, um, the ones we have from tombs, that show women preparing different types of foods and different related activities. And um, I was preparing my talk and looking for the images, and I thought I'll take whatever images I have on my computer. But I was so surprised just how much more often men are depicted preparing food than women. Although we would think that because this is a traditional society that women would be the ones in charge of the cooking in the kitchen. Um, and I've started exploring this a little bit more. Why on tomb scenes are men depicted more often than women? It's still an ongoing research and what I'd like to do is, what I will have to do is look through um, tens 
of different tombs and to look at the description at the at the reliefs and the drawings on them and the carvings in order to figure out if this is um, just a, a bias based on whatever I had on my computer at the time or this is actually the case. But I do think it's the case because I've been looking into it. And I don't know why women are not depicted as often as men um, preparing food. Is it because the tomb is the male domain and the male is the focus of the attention so no one really cares who is depicted doing what? Is it because um, men prepared food a lot more often than women, although I'm, I'm not sure if, if this was the case? Or could it be because these scenes were depicted uh, showing industrial workshops? So public workshops or workshops uh, preparing food for the, the palace. So an industrial context, while women would be usually cooking at home and they would be, um, their, their, their space, their domain would be the household and not um, the, the bakeries and the shops that were providing for the public. And we know from ancient Egypt that women, the woman, the woman was seen as the lady of the house, and there was even a title, Nebet Per, in, in the ancient Egyptian language, which literally translates to lady house, the lady of the house. And it's an expression that we still have in Arabic today. It's the same expression, but just translated into Arabic words. Um, and so we know that women exercised a lot of control over their households. Um, and I think it's just the case of, like today, where you have um, people working in gastronomy, it is, um, you have a lot more males working as chefs, for example, than you do females. And today in Egypt, the bakers in the public bakeries, they are usually men. I've never seen a woman. Um, once I've seen a cashier who was a woman, otherwise it's usually men. And I think this may, may be why the scenes are more male heavy, showing men preparing more, um, foods than, than the women, but it's still a work in progress. I still have to explore it uh, a lot more systematically. Interesting. So it's like, it's a, it's a theory or, you know, an, an idea trying to explore, but thinking about, like you said, you know, is it just the bias of what I have, what I have have for resources that I'm only seeing this? Is this part, actually part of a larger trend? And also what, you know, the actually the available pieces that you're able to even find, you know, is there a bias in what was preserved, you know, was were maybe there only depictions of men on in some of these um, images, because it was like, oh, well, we want to show men, even if women are doing it, but we only really want to talk about men or something like that, you know, is there a bias in actually what the physical things are that you could find? And then is there, you know, other other things to keep in mind as you're actually doing that research? Um, it just seems like it's all such a puzzle. It's all such a detective work. It is. And this is what makes it so much fun because you, you have an idea, you have a theory, you have a bee in your bonnet and it keeps buzzing until you manage to find the one bit of information that brings your entire argument and theory together or completely breaks it down. And that's fine because then you move on to the next thing. Gosh, is it fun or is it completely frustrating? <laughs> It's it, it fun most of the time. <laughs> oh, gosh. Well, I'm so glad that you are out there doing all of this interesting work and just get to tell us the easy parts. You know, we get to ask you a couple questions and some of the stuff you're saying was years and years and years of research and digging, physically digging for things and all that. So thank you for making our job way easier. We can just ask you all the hard questions. It is my pleasure. I, I like to talk about my work. <laughs> and I would like to come back on the show maybe in a couple of years and tell you everything I've said has changed. We found new data to change everything that I've said. <laughs> <laughs> and that women were actually pharaohs and, you know, they made all the food. And <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> well, that leads me to my next thought, Mena. Um, I am not sure if we even managed to scratch the surface of Egyptian food history and women's role in it in our brief little hour that we've had here. Um, but I, I feel like all of our listeners are going to want to know more. And I know that you recently um, guest edited a special edition of the Rawi magazine on Egyptian food. Did you want to talk about that and then let us know um, where we could find more of your work? Um, so this is another women led project that is very, very close to my heart. 
a very dear friend of mine, Yasmin Al-Durghami, founded a heritage magazine um, about, well, 10 years ago. This was the 10th issue. And um, it's publishing is a very difficult field, especially today. Publishing at a high quality is also very difficult. Um, and she's been publishing this magazine for 10 years, and each issue is themed on a different uh, topic in Egyptian history, and it goes throughout Egyptian history. Um, she's had one on the history of Egyptian cinema, for example. And together um, with uh, the team, um, I guest edited the, this issue on Egyptian culinary history. And when we started the issue, Yasmin and I, we wanted to um, define what Egyptian cuisine was. And as we explored it and talked to different people working on food and, and different people and their experiences of food, we realized that there isn't a single Egyptian cuisine. In fact, it is so many different cuisines that are geographically and temporally separated or connected, but um, distinct from one another. And you can find usually the issue uh, is in print and we do have it on sale everywhere in Egypt and in London as well. And we don't release it online for another year, but we've made an exception this year where we've released it all online. The entire issue is online. Um, it includes uh, short articles, very accessible on every single time period in Egyptian history and what the food was like at, the, at that time. And it also in, has a little um, recipe book. It's like a little booklet, but you use it for, for cooking recipes. So we've called it the cooklet, and we think it's very smart, and we're very excited about coming up with this cooklet expression. So we have a little cooklet with different recipes from different time periods. And that was quite a challenge, uh, developing these recipes into teaspoons and cups uh, and whatever measurements we've we've had to use but this is all accessible online and so everyone can just look at it and bring a little bit of taste of Egyptian history flavors from Egyptian history to their table. Oh wonderful so Rawi magazine rawi-magazine.com um, is where our listeners could find that information. And now, Mena, what is your, do you have a personal website or blog or a um, social media presence? I'm just on Instagram. That's my only connection to social media and, and that world. So my handle is eat like an Egyptian. <laughs> I couldn't think of, I had to come up with a name very quickly and I thought walk like an Egyptian, eat like an Egyptian. Okay, that works. That's perfect. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Um, this has been a very interesting conversation. And I will admit the last time Cleopatra was mentioned on um, our podcast, I had said that I was going to try to delve into a very, very thick and intimidating um, biography of her. And I have barely scratched the surface. So I just know there's so much more to learn about Egypt, Egyptian foodways. Um, and I thank you for sharing what you do know. And we would love to have you back in the future um, just to talk about what you already know that we maybe didn't touch on and anything new that you might uncover. That'd be lovely. I would love that. And to our listeners, if you want to find out more about Sandy and I and Femidish as a project, what our mission is, you can find us at www.femidish.com. We're on Instagram and Facebook as Femidish. Um, that's F-E-M-I-D-I-S-H. And um, thanks again, everyone, for joining thank us. Thank you so much, Mena, and thank you, everyone, for listening thank today. Thank We were trying to save the world I was picking up the house